hospice and have been for several years. Before that, I was a local church pastor and so on. Um, but happy to be with you. Thank you for having me this morning. Uh, in Luke 18.8, Jesus asks the question whether he will find faith on earth. In the parables that follow, Jesus describes the aspects of the faith that he hopes to find in his people. Today's parable illustrates the aspect of justification and faith, or the relationship anyway. So a group of college students sits down for the final exam. The professor circulates the exams and tells the students that they have 50 minutes to complete this pass-fail three-page test. Either you get an A or you get an F, period. She then strongly urges the students to read all the directions before starting. But come on, three pages is a lot of exam questions, especially when it's advanced calculus like this class. So who has time to read them all before you get started? You gotta get going. The fact is that the first person, uh, the first question asks how to calculate pi and why that it's on the exam, I don't know quite, but, but that's a lot, that's pretty heavy stuff. And everybody needs so you push through, you, you work hard on it. Well, a few minutes into the test, two people from the back of the room come up, hand in their paper, and leave. And I mean, I suppose in some ways, some people just can't handle it. Some people can't hack it, can they? Well, 50 minutes expire, and everyone else hands in their exams because it's time. No one's finished, so hopefully this exam will be graded on a curve. When grades are posted, the only A's, however, belong to the two students who had handed in their paper a few minutes after the, began, after the examination began. Everyone else failed. Those who are diligent, intellectually gifted students, and those who blew off the whole you know, term and just tried to pull an all-nighter, they ended up in the exact same place. So how could that be? That doesn't sound right. See, had everyone read the exam fully as the professor instructed, they would have seen that the last instruction said, if you cannot answer all the questions on this exam but still want an A, write your name on a piece of paper, ask for mercy, and hand it in. Two people showed faith in the instructor. Two people knew that they could never answer three pages of calculus questions in 50 minutes, and so threw themselves on the mercy of the professor. Everyone else who trusted in their own abilities, or those who were too, I guess, proud to admit their own weaknesses, they all failed. We'll see a similar dynamic today in two fellows that, that Jesus talks about in a parable. They'll be praying to God, and um, one of them is particularly religious, and the other one is decidedly not. Yet neither of their lifestyles will matter. So we ask, what does it take to please God? Let's pray. I know that that's a good start. God, we thank you for the opportunity we have to come together this morning as your people, to worship together, uh, lift you up and recognize your greatness and glory, but also to touch base with one another. Maybe there are some ways that we can be supportive for others or, or in our own hearts need support, and we can do that when we're here person to person. So we ask for your great blessing on our time today, and especially in your word, we pray. Amen. So, Luke 18, starting at verse 9. Now, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Let me pause here. 
Now, to those originally hearing this parable, they would have understood that Jesus is actually talking about a formal worship service. This is what it would have been now, just like we are here. See, believers at that time waited to pray until the twice-a-day sacrifice at the temple. There would be a a lamb slaughtered, then the priest would enter the holy place with incense. In fact, if you remember, soon uh, Ron mentioned it's Advent coming. If you remember the Christmas story in Luke chapter 1, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, is a priest, and, and we read this. Once Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Verse 10, and when the time of the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Okay, so this is what we're looking at. People came to the temple. The, the, um, it's actually the hilasterion. That's what the Greek word would be for the, the, the temple sacrifice, that rite. The hilasterion. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, robbers and evildoers and adulterers, or even like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I possess. Now imagine, just like here, the temple is full of God's people huddling together as a community to appeal for God's grace. Well, except for this fellow, this Pharisee, who stood off. And Luke's words literally tell us that he stationed himself away from everyone. And you may wonder why. Because as a Pharisee, he believed that the common person was so spiritually unclean that even if he rubs up against their clothing, that God will consider him, that Pharisee, as unclean. So he didn't want to do that. I suppose that's an example of his dedication, his religious dedication. And by the way, this Pharisee, this Pharisee's prayer, it actually comes from a prayer that was, that was prayed at that time by Pharisees. So Jesus is not making something up. He's, he's sharing what, what would have otherwise been prayed. Um, And also this, we would note that the Pharisees' religious observance exceeds that of the law of Moses. Now, you may remember, having memorized it, that the law of Moses requires fasting only twice a year. And we really only have to tithe on our increase, and yet this fellow says, I tithe on all that I possess. I don't know, maybe he's cooking or something, and he grabs some salt and puts a tenth of it down the sink. I don't know what he does. But certainly, if anyone could be justified... By human effort, it is this Pharisee, wouldn't it be? But the tax collector stood at a distance. So again, he's also set apart from everyone else. He would not even look to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, unlike today, tax collectors were hated. We love our IRS agents. No no one had anything good to say about those folks. They were Jews that were collaborating with Romans. So, you know, Roman might walk through the city wanting to collect from merchants, but the merchants had these, these great places to hide stuff. The Romans wouldn't know where they are, but the tax collector, being Jewish himself, comes right from that community and knew exactly where to go, exactly where to squeeze to get what he wanted. And he really inflicted his greed on common people, so he was kind of a loathsome individual. Yet we see in, in the parable that this tax collector humbles himself He also sets himself apart, as I mentioned, but it's in a contrasting fashion to the Pharisee. The tax collector is aware of his guilt and does not consider himself worthy to be with other people. You might think of the the, the Pharisee as beating his chest like King Kong, and this fellow is beating his chest to 
show his, his remorse. And you may think about, or, or wonder about that, that um, symbolism of beating your breast was really something only women did in that time and only in great distress. So we see an example of a guy who, well, he knows he's guilty and so he prays and he's doing everything he can um, to persuade God to hear his prayer. Now Jesus uptake, verse 14, I tell you that this man, talking about the text collector, rather than the other, rather than the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now we need to be careful when we read parables that we do not misunderstand why Jesus told them. For example, Jesus was not using today's parable to say, be humble in prayer. Kind of it, we see it in, in action, but that's not it. The uptake in verse 14 says, this man rather than the other went home justified before God. So this um, parable is, is looking at the question, what does it take to be justified before God? Not what is the best posture in prayer? And as we'll see in Luke's wording, the tax collector's prayer was accepted based not on his humility, but based on the appeal he made to God, regardless of his posture in prayer. So the average listener to Jesus' parable would have been confused and actually somewhat angry when they heard verse 14. Setting aside our notions of Pharisees, Jews of Jesus' era would usually see them as good guys, as heroes of some sort. Sure, today's Pharisee was a little bit of a jerk, but I challenge anyone to meet his, his dedication and his piety. The first century Palestinian listening to Jesus' parable would not understand why the pig dog tax collector, why he seems to have won, while the high school quarterback with a gorgeous wife and a seven-figure income seems to be the loser. If someone doing everything right can't be justified before God, who can? We'll ask that same question that Jesus is subtly asking. What does it take to be justified before God? As we begin, let's ask the question first, what does it mean to be justified before God? Justification, as you may know, is the event or process by which sinners are declared to be righteous in the sight of God. Now, this idea includes a seldom used word, propitiation. It means that God is angered at sin and God's anger must be assuaged. We cause the sin, so really we can't, we can't make up for it in any real way. We can't assuage God's wrath. In fact, First uh, John tells us this. This is love. Listen, not that we loved God, okay? Nothing we can do. Not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent Jesus Christ, his son, as the propitiation for our sins. Make no mistake. When it comes to justification, Jesus did not come to reward people who were, you know, trying kind of hard. No, he came to make dead people live. He said this, for I came to call sinners and not the righteous. While justification is accomplished by grace in response to faith, that faith cannot be passive. Saving faith will inevitably express itself, not merely by confessing Jesus as personal Lord and Savior, but by feeding, clothing, visiting, and otherwise caring for the lame, the least, the lost, and the losers. Right? We see that in, in the separation of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. The lame, the least, the lost, and the losers. To be justified before God means to have been declared clean by God once propitiation is satisfied. 
based on whatever criteria God has determined makes this so. And we've seen human effort falls short of what it takes to be justified before God. So let's examine more closely in light of today's parable, what is the basis for being justified before God? Now, the point of today's parable is not to cancel this Pharisee as we might in today's woke culture. The point was to briefly show the breadth of human religious, religious experience and judge it then on its merits or demerits. We see two examples before us. A guy straining to live well, religiously. And we'll, let's try and give him credit for that. The rest of all that's going on. But, you know, he really was trying hard. And then the, the guy who humbles himself just when he knows he's, he feels guilty. Well, stressing human observance of God's law is not the basis for being justified before God. I'm, I'm glad that the Pharisee, for example, mentions God in his prayer, but if you read the prayer through, the name God appears only once, and I appears four times. So the lamb loses his life to atone, to atone for people's sins, including the, the, the sins of this Pharisee. And incense is rising before God with the prayers of the people, and while the hill, you know, the hill and while that's going on, this fella, instead of reflecting on God's mercy and reveling in the love of God and the shown to us, this fellow is standing there reciting his bona fides, trying to justify himself before God. And folks, I think Jesus tells his parable about the Pharisee, not because we're supposed to think, oh, I'm not like that guy, but, but really to identify more like when I act like that guy. Because we do the same thing he does. You may not think about it, but we try to justify ourselves when we remind God just how close we are, how close we are to actually forgiving someone. We justify ourselves and try to make points with God when we reflect on how much we sacrifice to take care of someone who's immature or ill in our lives. We make the case that our prayers ought to be answered when we show off to God the sum of money we've given to a worthy cause perhaps who take food to shut-ins and, and expect some sort of a thank you. Who knows? We cannot help but try to justify ourselves. I don't think Jesus pictured this Pharisee to lampoon Pharisees. I think he was demonstrating that no matter how good any of us are, there's still a core of pride and of self-centeredness, even among the best of us. No, human... Human observance of God's law is not the basis for justification before God, and neither is humiliating ourselves when we feel guilty. Yes, the tax collector differs from the Pharisee in his posture and prayer. That's true. Luke tells us that the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The tax collector prays humbly, but so what? Okay, if we were to slander someone and that person loses his job, but then we apologize. How does that make everything right? What's worse, you might lose your job for admitting that you slandered someone, and does that justify you? You might think that your heart is in the right place, but so what? Your humility does not erase the iniquity of what you've done. Now, you might be saying to yourself, hold on a second here, Mike. Didn't you read the parable? Jesus said the tax collector was justified. How then can you now say that his efforts put him in the same deficit category as that of the Pharisee. Well, the tax collector's posture could not sway God because that too is simply human effort. So everything has to come down to the tax collector's prayer. Now, our English translations most often read, God have mercy on me, a sinner. 
We've seen people in the Gospels commonly make this appeal to Jesus. Some blind guy actually later in the same chapter, chapter 18, will, will cry out to Jesus, Elias on me, Elias on me, have mercy on me. A Canaanite woman with a demon-possessed daughter, a guy whose son has seizures and throws himself in the fire. Other blind people, and even the rich man who dies and talks to Abraham, all say, Elias on me. In other words, though I'm not worthy of your time, Jesus, please find it within yourself to help me. But actually, this is not what the tax collector prays. The tax collector does not pray, Elias on me. And I don't want to cause you to doubt your English translation. This is a pretty good translation of what he says. He's, but, but this guy's not saying, you know, hey, dude, can you help a guy out? No, he was in the public worship as the hilasterion was being offered by the priest. And you know what he prays? He basically prays, hilasterion me. He doesn't say, look, I'm not, you know, I'm just kind of stumbling here, help me out. He's saying, I have nothing, not one thing in myself that is worthy to come before you, God. There is nothing I could ever do to take away the wrath of God against my sin. There is nothing I could ever do to make it right and be transformed. Please accept that sacrifice of the lamb on my behalf. Young's literal translation says this, God be propitious to me, the sinner. What does it take to be justified before God? It takes the propitiating sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. Only the sacrifice of Jesus, not anything we ever do, justifies us before God. Karl Barth stated this way, We do not know ourselves as sinners, and we do not become sorry for our sins through self-analysis. It is rather in Christ that we are identified as sinners, and the same time disposed of as sinners. Kenneth Bailey says, Justification is a gift of God granted by means of the atonement sacrifice to sinners who have come to him, who then confess their sins in full awareness of their inability to achieve righteousness. Yet, he adds, the atonement sacrifice is worthless to anyone who assumes self-righteousness. Paul celebrates in Romans that since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Amen, that's good stuff. But is that the whole of our Christian life? Do we simply make a profession? God then declares us justified, and then we live however we want? I think not. I mentioned before, Matthew 25, when God separates the goats and the sheeps. Think about that passage. Where in there does God ever ask for their profession of faith? Nowhere. God never asks for their profession of faith. No, he, he wants to know how these justified people have gone on to treat the lame, the least, the lost, or the losers. We must use our justification for the basis of a new life, a new life in Christ, not wallow in the pride and self-centeredness of our old life. There is a way for us to live as justified. And so, what then does it take for us to live as justified before God? To answer this quest question, we should quickly examine the life of someone who took today's lesson to heart, right? Jump ahead with me to Luke chapter 19, where it says in verse 1, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man, there was, a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a what? A chief tax collector and was wealthy. 
He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached that spot, he looked up to him and said, Hey, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So Zacchaeus came down at once, and Jesus welcomed well, they welcomed, he welcomed him gladly. Thank you for the Greek being a little bit in, uh, difficult to know what, the, what they really meant there. Anyway, all the people saw this and began to mutter, he has, begone, he has gone to be a guest of a sinner. Now, why am I reading about Zacchaeus? Well, because two things. One, uh, it's very common for a parable to be followed by a story that then illustrates that, that point. And when you see that and start reading, rereading the, the Gospels again, perhaps in January when you do that, it's kind of fun to see. But more so, look, Luke placed this teaching moment very close to the parable. He was trusting that we would see a tax collector set apart from the crowd, remember he ran up a tree, of whom no one had anything good to say. Oh, where else have we heard that before, right? But Zacchaeus then stood up and said to the Lord, 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 here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times that amount. Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man, Jesus, came to seek and save the lost. Remember, not make pretty good people better, but to seek those who are dead and make them live again. So like Zacchaeus, not to regard our justification as simply a get-out-of-jail-free card, through the work of the Spirit by grace, we too can be transformed into people who live as justified before God. We notice in Zacchaeus' life how his transformation reversed his sinful life. Zacchaeus had defrauded people of money, and now he reverses courses and re- restores money to those whom he had defrauded. What does a justified life look for you? If you've committed financial sins, perhaps the Spirit will also lead you to financial repentances and generosity. If you committed relational sins, Social media, (laughs) social media, right? Um, The Spirit will likely lead you into ways that you can demonstrate love through relationships. If you stole things or destroyed people's property, maybe you can find ways of using your hands for good, such as uh, helping, you know, widows or something uh, with carpentry or or cooking for shadens or something. I can't, I can't guess the the the, um, creative ways of the Spirit would help you in, in finding how you should live out your justified life. But I invite you today to think about that. What were the many ways that you, what were the minefields you <laughs> walk through all the time in your sinfulness? And how can God take and transform that particular aspect of your life into living a justified life in Christ, into living a place and a way that God's glory would be shown? Be open, right? Jesus asked whether he will find faith on earth when he returns. And the faith Jesus expects involves being justified before God. After all, it's easy to have faith in things that don't really matter and certainly don't make us right with God. But by faith, we could know God, the one who applies that hill asterion, will will accept that on our behalf, accept that propitiation on our behalf. This gift is ours, not, not because of anything we had done, but because Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And folks, 
we are the lost. We all want the resurrection life, but you know what? The only part we're going to get is death. The resurrection life for us is, is not right now quite. There will be time, but the only thing we'll experience is death at this point. One beautiful thing about being justified before God is that the Spirit then transforms our life into living demonstrations of the, what the resurrecting God can do with the spiritually dead. A spirit can show wisdom among the foolish and God's mercy for even the worst of us. We do tend to justify ourselves before God, but at some point we will see God display the true majesty of Jesus, exalting him, the true Hilasterion. At that time we will see Jesus exalted to the highest place with a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen.